Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Nurit Nobel. Based in Stockholm, Nurit is co-founder and chief executive of Impactually, a management consultancy which applies behavioral insights to create business and societal impact. In addition, Nurit is currently pursuing a PhD at Stockholm School of Economics, examining human decision-making and behavior change. Nurit, it's great to speak to you. Thank you very much for having me. So in a recent blog I read, you examine ways to increase diversity in the tech sector through the application of behavioral science approaches. Perhaps you might start by telling us then why diversity is such an issue in the tech sector. Yes, absolutely. So I think one thing that um, how I approach the topic is, you know, I come from the behavioral science discipline and what we often focus on when we do our research or our applied work is kind of the ways in which people's behavior doesn't always match their intentions. So often people can have the best intentions, uh, whether it's about their own goals or, or others' goals. So for example, people might want to, you know, lose a few kilos or um, eat healthier or um, stop smoking or save more money. Um, or it could be something that matters to the organization, such as diversity. But then in reality, despite their good intention and despite knowing what they need to do to get there, it still might be hard for them to engage in the right behaviors. So if we take, for example, um, losing weight or being healthier, you know, people understand what they need to do. They understand that they need to, you know, maybe consume less calories. So, you know, skip that extra uh, extra cake in favor for, of vegetables. But when they're in the moment, it's just a bit too tempting or there are other barriers in place that actually hinder them from taking the right action. So we have this gap that we call the intention to action gap. And that's something that we also see in an organizational context when we talk about diversity. So when we have uh, all kinds of studies where we ask people what they think, we hear from managers that diversity is super important to them that they really care a lot, that they want to build diverse organizations and, um, and, and that they're positive to the idea. But then when we actually look at the, you know, the facts, the, the composition of companies, and especially in the tech sector, we see very, very low rates of diversity, whether we're talking about gender diversity, ethnic diversity, and other types of diversity. So we have this really clear intention to action gap. And this is something that as a behavioral scientist, it's really attractive for me uh, as, as, a, as an area to, to, to study and to intervene on. So that's kind of what brought me to that to begin with. Okay, you mentioned there are a number of different forms of, of diversity. When we think particularly about the tech sector, is it one in particular that is most relevant or mo most pressing? So is it, for example, gender diversity that is the, the big challenge? Or is it age or, or, or other forms of diversity more generally? I think that many forms of diversity are relevant. The one that we have 
perhaps the most data on is gender diversity, which tends to be extremely low in the tech sector. But other forms of diversity are also important and, and the tech sector is also perhaps lacking in them, but it could be a situation where we're lacking the right data. So for example, I am speaking to you right now from Sweden. I live in Sweden. In Sweden, it is actually illegal to have any kind of um, information about employee race or ethnicity. You're just not allowed to collect that. So when we speak about diversity in Sweden, we're almost only talking about gender diversity when it comes to actual data uh, of what kind of diversity do we see in companies. But we know just anecdotally when we look around us that there's also a lack of other types of diversity. It's just that it's not necessarily that we have the data showing us that, but it's more the general, you know, sense of things for anyone who lives in this reality. Okay, and, and you do, if you follow the tech sector at all, you do hear sometimes mention of, of the tech bros, particularly in Silicon Valley, and that, that whole sort of very male and, and, and masculine dominated uh, thing. But what then do you feel are, are the roots of the problem? You, you mentioned the, the gap between intention and, and action. Is it quite simply that the people don't know what to do, or is it much deeper than that? So there, there are many there there are many factors that that contribute to to the problem, and of course you can go uh, you know all the way back to what kind of you know subjects. Um, uh, girls and boys choose in in school to to concentrate on and and there's a lot of work being done on intervening already then so you know encouraging girls to choose more uh, stem related fields for their higher education for example is is um, is one intervention to to correct on in that stage but what i try to focus on is what can we do here and now with companies that are interested in increasing diversity but don't seem to manage to, to do it by themselves. Uh, and here, um, a, an area that has shown a lot of potential is the whole area of behavioral design, which is basically taking insights from behavioral science, insights from behavioral economics, from psychology, about how people make decisions and the kind of biases that influence people's decisions and try to um, intervene there. So try to create systems and processes in place that promote diversity instead of promoting the same old um, ways of hiring uh, that, that result in the same kind of candidates that we're used to seeing so far. You mentioned their systems and processes. D does that also suggest that something like organizational culture should be considered in, in order to reinforce those systems and processes or are they actually more a reflection of the, the culture that, that could or perhaps should be in place within an organization? Absolutely. So when I talk about systems and processes, I'm talking about all the stages of um, kind of getting an employee into an organization and also retaining and promoting and, and keeping that employee as a happy employee in the organization. So everything from attracting talent through, you know, recruiting and hiring and selecting and then eventually promoting 
and also everything that has to do with um, so so elements that have to do with the culture they come into play a little later so not in the hiring and selection process but more later when we already have the employees in the system but it's about retaining them it's about evaluating them it's about promoting the right talent upwards this is where culture comes into play so when we talk about intervening by constructing systems and processes, we absolutely also talk about uh, about culture, among other things. And the thing that's really important to, to understand about this approach is that behavioral design basically says, let's intervene on a system level rather than on a person level. So instead of trying to fix the person, the manager, we're going to fix the system. Because actually, chances are the manager doesn't need fixing. The manager doesn't need convincing that diversity is important. The manager already believes that. But the systems are, are, not, are, are not optimal to, to actually um, create that chain reaction that will, also, uh, that will come into play and also produce these diverse organizations. So those are the ones we need to fix. You mentioned, though, there that a, uh, the manager already knows and it's more the system that need, needs to change. If we perhaps take a step back, what if you were faced with a situation where it was actually the manager or group of managers who weren't convinced and the system might be a, might be pushing one direction, but actually the, the managers at whatever level said, I don't really see the benefit of this. Is that a challenge that you've come across? So that can absolutely be the case. That can absolutely ha happen. But our data shows us that it's it's not commonly the case. So it, more often than not, managers will agree that diversity is important. And we see that also in the various you know statements that they issue to their uh, you know various stakeholders. So most companies have already matured enough to understand that this is important and that, that they need to play the diversity game to win in the market from a host of different uh, advantages that uh, diversity affords uh, from, you know, uh, be, being a more creative, uh, collaborative workplace. So there is a lot of research that shows also that diverse teams perform better, especially in creative domains. So that's one benefit that diversity affords uh, to actually having happier employees. So that's another thing that we see from the data that diverse teams are happier and that employees in diverse organizations are more likely to stay in the company, to not leave the company. Um, and then we, we have a, a host of, of, uh, of other benefits like um, the diverse teams reflect the marketplace in a better way. So when you are a consumer facing companies and a company and you try to sell your products, if everyone that has been involved in creating these products are um, only reflecting one segment of the population, you're going to create uh, less fitting products for other segments of the population. So that's another benefit of diversity. So I would say that when I start working with an organization in a diversity project, I always start by outlining these benefits. But to be honest, the fact that I'm even there, the fact that I was hired to, to carry on this, this project shows that they already believe it. And, you know, from some reason, they are curious about it and they want to do better. And this has been my experience, that most companies, most organizations understand that they can do better and they want to do better. Um, 
so they don't necessarily need a lot of convincing. It's always good to start with that just to establish a common ground, but it's not necessarily convincing that's going to get us the desired effect because they already believe that diversity is important. So in that case then, say an organization of of whatever type has invited you in, and obviously we're we're talking today particularly about tech, uh, tech companies, how how does the process work? And I'm thinking here about, you know, where do you begin in terms of the, the, the particular sort of engagement and, and what aspects do you target first? And then or equally, how do you know that, that what you're doing is working as you're going along over time? So the first thing we do is that we start with an auditing of the processes that they already have in place so that we can determine, okay, where do we see um, opportunities to to make it better? Um, a, a lot of my work and what I do is based on science, on academic research and on approaches that have been tried and tested. Uh, so I tend to like borrow a lot and I stand on the shoulders of giants in the field, for example, work by Iris Bonnet at Harvard and and others that have really looked into this idea of behavioral design and how do we design processes to promote diversity in organizations. So So we start there. We start by looking at what do they currently have in place? What do they have, you know, anything from, you know, value statements and mission statements or success criteria for employees. And then specifically, because the biggest interventions that um, are, are normally in the areas of recruitment and, and hiring, because that's that's where you can create a, a big difference in a, in a short amount of time. So normally we look at how these processes are structured. And more often than not, we find that they're not even structured, right? I mean, most most tech companies, uh, especially the ones that I've worked with, have sort of started from a very intuitive uh, approach without a lot of best practices, because just like any startup, you know, the founders know what they know and they don't know what they don't know. And they're doing they they have a million hats. You know, they do both the product and the uh, and the technology and, the uh, you know, this and the, that. So maybe they're not they, they don't have. Um, they're not exactly, you know, professional recruitment professionals. So we we start with these intuitive processes and we start streamlining them. And the first thing we do is that we define what are the actual objective criteria for success in this company, which is something that not a lot of companies have spent time about defining before they start recruiting. So they recruit for a role, let's say a product manager role, without without actually really reflecting on what does it take to be a fantastic product manager in this company. So the way they start recruiting is maybe they do a copy paste for a product manager position that they saw somebody else, maybe a company the same size, you know, maybe just something they thought about late at night. Uh, maybe it's you know the 50th task on their to-do list, but the point is it often is not related to what is it that we actually need in terms of the personality, in terms of the skills, in terms of the experience. Uh, what are the actual criteria? So we start by defining these, and we connect them to either existing you know values that the company has, or you know a mission, or a vision, or whatever it is. But also we try to really um, be specific about 
what are these specific skills, experiences, personality traits that we want to see. Once we've done that, then the whole thing becomes a lot easier because then instead of having a very subjective recruiting process, we can have a very objective one where we can relate our, in our, our recruiting criteria to these, this hiring ideal that we have painted the picture of. So we, we start with these objective success criteria and then we translate them into, all right, so what does it mean in terms of CV? What experiences are we looking at? What are the skills we, we want to look for on people's CV? And we actually you know, start with a guide. These are the things that we're looking for, and this is how you score each CV. So we, we really try to quantify and objectify, uh, make the, product, the, the process very objective. Because often the biggest problem with recruiting processes is that they're very subjective. And when recruiting processes are subjective, we as the recruiters end up hiring or recruiting the person that we like rather than the person that might be best for the job. And the reason why we like this person is because maybe they remind, remind, us, or, or remind us of ourselves. Maybe they went to the same school. Maybe they have the same hobby. Maybe they just look like us from whatever reason. Maybe we think they might be you know, a fun person to have a beer with. All of these things are great, but they have zero to very low correlation with job performance. So provided that we are actually trying to recruit the person who will perform best on the job, these are not the things we should be looking at. What we should be looking for is fit for the job and fit for these criteria that we've predefined. So once we've defined the criteria and we've translated them to CV recruiting guidelines and then to interview questions and, and answers or, you know, what we're looking for in an interview, then the whole job becomes much easier of actually having a streamlined process. We, we talked earlier on about managers and, and as you were going through that, that great outline there, the thought struck me that the concept of of leadership and the role of leadership wasn't really sort of mentioned as such is there a place where you know leaders need to to role model and to demonstrate and to reinforce these sorts of practices and behaviors to ensure that they happen in the way that you know you are intending and, and are designing of course, leaders are super important. Just like any organizational change uh, project, any change management project, it's very important that the importance of it is recognized by leadership, endorsed by their leadership. And it's the, ideally that the highest person in the organization is the one standing in front of the employees and telling them, this is important for us. Therefore, we have chosen to embark on this project, which means that we might be doing things a little bit differently from now on, and we're all gonna contribute to it, but it's because the company has decided that this is important to us, that this reflects our values, and that this is going to contribute to our success. So absolutely, it's very important that the leaders are both aware of this uh, and they endorse it and advocate it to the organization. And of course, it's also important that they espouse the same values. So if we're talking about diversity, it's important that the leaders don't then, you know, um, do things that we perceive as, as uh, maybe creating a, an environment that is not inclusive um, for whatever minority we're talking about here. So yes, leadership is extremely important. 
So it's about having that alignment then between, you know, leader actions, behaviors, statements, and and the, the, the processes and so, so on that they put in place. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if we you know, go go further then, because we we're talking a lot about the the, the link between, say, the, the processes that might be brought into place and the, the the behavioral aspects. Have you seen situations where a company might have implemented certain processes and procedures almost as a way of ticking a box and saying, yes, we have a diversity policy, and then it goes in the bottom drawer? Have you seen that happen and, and does it does it work or, or do you really need the behavioral approach on top to ensure that diversity does happen and does work within the organization? Yeah, that is super interesting. Uh, I mean, in the for, from the companies that I've had a chance to work with, I haven't seen that because obviously these were companies. So there's a selection bias here. These are companies that clearly really do care a lot about diversity, and and that's why they invite me as a consultant to to help them with that. So I haven't come across companies that really just go through the motions. Uh, I have to assume that they're out there. But I, I really do believe that more and more companies are recognizing that you really do actually have to, you know, walk the walk rather than just talk the talk. So I think what I'm seeing, at least in the market, is that there is more and more awareness that, you know, it's no longer going to be sufficient with just a statement or, you know, just having something casually on our website. We really do need to make sure that our processes reflect what we are talking about. What what lessons are there then? Do you think for for leaders and organisations? So if someone was listening today to the the interview and thought, okay, we we need to do something about diversity in our organisation. Maybe they're a, a a small tech company, maybe they're a large tech company, or indeed any other sort of organisation. What what are the key kind of takeaway lessons that you would highlight? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. I mean, I I have a lot of tips, and and some of them are uh, are I've written in an article that I I think you've read. So increasing diversity in recruiting in the tech sector. So people can Google that article, and maybe you can include it in the show notes for the full version. But just to give a few themes. So one thing that I will say is first of all, you really need to think about the entire chain of, as we said, like the employee ex the, the employee experience, right? So from this this whole funnel of attracting uh, attracting the right candidates, selecting them, uh, accepting them, then promoting them, what is happening in each stage of this process? So for uh, just to give a few examples, if we're talking about attracting candidates, you know, often companies would just uh, maybe put on some, um, you know, advertising social media. Um, so, for example, I, I was working actually with a football club. So the Stockholm Football and Hockey Club, the, the, they are the champions in the, in the Swedish league. So quite an established club. And they wanted to increase their gender diversity. They have like sports leadership program and they wanted to have more, um, more women and girls coming in. Um, and they told me that until now, how they used to recruit for these roles is that they used to just put it up on their social media. So who follows social media accounts of football clubs? It's normally guys. So that's why we shouldn't be surprised that then the pool of candidates is consisted of 90% guys and 10% girls. 
So if we really want to increase diversity, if we're truly committed, we need to also think about this step of the funnel. How do we reach out more inclusively? Which means that we need to work a little bit harder, think about a few more channels, uh, reach out to, you know, in, in a few other ways. So think, of, think outside the box. But it is possible because these people are out there. They're just waiting to be reached and they're not reachable through your you know, traditional um, tools. So how do we reach them? So that's one thing that I would recommend to really think about this entire chain. And that includes about so both, you know, the, the attraction phase, our ad, what kind of words we, we use in our ads. There's a lot of behavioral science that goes into that. What kind of words, you know, are more appealing to women versus men, etc. So think about the entire chain. Then the second tip I would give is to really try as much as possible to delay your intuition in the recruitment process. This is something that actually comes from Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel Prize winner uh, in economics. And um, it's his theories that are very much uh, in, the, in the background and in, in the basis for this entire work. And he really did a lot of work also about recruiting and it really showed that you know human beings we are uh, subject to a lot of biases uh, that are as a result of uh, that we sometimes have to make a lot of decisions in a short amount of time we make fast automatic decisions which means that we take shortcuts and these shortcuts sometimes lead us astray and that's why we are subject to a lot of biases like for example i mentioned before the affinity bias which means that we are more likely to think that a person that we like is also more competent um, but there is no correlation between, you know, how much we like a person to how competent we are. So we need to, as much as possible, try to de-bias the process, delay our intuition and rely on objective criteria. So look at your process and try to see where are the spots that you can actually put objective criteria in place so that you less rely on individual uh, bias and individual intuition. Um, so that would be my uh, my second part, my second tip. And then the third one is just overall um, recognize the importance of this approach of fixing processes. Do not think that just because you have the right intentions in place, it means that you will also get the right results. Because I've really seen plenty of organizations who were fully committed, but still did not get the results that they uh, that they wanted because they were doing the wrong things when it comes to the actions, the, the, the behaviors and the processes. So good intentions are not enough. It's not enough to say that diversity is important for us. It's about creating all these interventions in the processes so that we actually get the results that we want to see. As you mentioned, uh, I'll be putting a link to uh, to your article, to your blog post in in the show notes. But if people wanted to find out more about your research, uh, are there any other areas that they could take a look at? Yeah, definitely. I so my generally I conduct research about behavior change and this gap that I that I already mentioned between our good intentions and you know the behaviors that we fail to take, the good behaviors that we fail to take. I do research about for example, you know, how how we can help people uh, close this intention to action gap. How we can help people quit smoking or eat healthier or make better financial decisions. Um, and so for now, the best place to, to 
to learn about me and my research and also uh, other projects that I do is uh, my company's website, Impactually. Uh, we have an article section and a media section. In the media section, you can find links to where we've given interviews and uh, other podcast episodes and so on. And our articles is things that we have written, both about the research that we carry out and different projects that we do. So that would be the best place to learn about what I'm currently exploring. That sounds fascinating. Well, Nurit Nobel of uh, Impactually, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license